0: here and comes the, the chief, chief. he's, he's the, chief the chief of all I'm the, medicine. The, of the medicine. the chief of the medicine at the hospital hey everybody welcome back to the overrun podcast my name is ed bowder
1: i'm dan schwester mike D. Filippo.
0: <laughs> kevin mazza
2: jess mestrupolo caroline
3: schwester
0: and today we are back with the whole gang, which is nice. We haven't talked in a, a big group in a while. And Mike was good enough to pull a whole lot of data uh, for cardiac arrest that came out in 2022. And we're going to do a quick uh, quick refresh on uh, on the cardiac arrest data that we have out there right now. So um, we've got about five or six papers that we're going to go over, different stuff that came out toward the middle and end of 2022. This is going to... Some of the things are, uh, are practice changing. Some of the things are just sort of interesting to know. But uh, the first thing we want to say is congratulations, Mike, on your new position uh, in residency. Mike is now the chief resident of his shop. Go, Mike. Yay. Thank you very much. (laughs) Boo. And his focus is actually on uh, on clinical education. So we have got a really good resource here, Mike. Uh, you know, we're we're all happy to be his friend and to have him in our lives, but we're also happy to exploit his uh, his commercial endeavors as a, as a chief resident of medical education. So, um, Mike use was good enough use me. Mike was good enough to compile all this data. Um, all right, Mike. Let's first talk about this. Uh, this is out of New England Journal of Medicine. This is blood pressure targets in comatose survivors of cardiac arrest. Uh, I'm going to try and say this is uh, Sharegard at uh, all. Um, I'm not pronouncing it right. From October 20th of 2022. So, what did this go over and uh, what did it discuss?
1: You know, those Danish last names are a little hard to pronounce.
0: That's um, a that's a K next to a J, so that's a no. How
1: problem. do I do this? Yeah,
4: great great standard of living. Terrible
0: pronunciation. <laughs>
1: um. So. This study was out of New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, The question was whether or not high or low blood pressure targets would be superior in preventing death or severe anoxic brain injury in the uh, post-resuscitation period for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survivors. Um, So what they did was they looked at the composite outcome of either death or hospital discharge with severe disability or coma within 90, 90 days and said, was there any decrease in these outcomes if we aimed for a higher blood pressure or a lower blood pressure? So what they did was instead of measuring systolic or diastolic, uh, most people do, and this is my practice, is aiming for a MAP. Um, So their low end of MAP was 63. The high end of a MAP was 77. And they said, is there any difference between these two? And they did find a difference saying that patients who had a higher MAP were more likely to be comatose or dead at the 90 day period um, with, with post-resuscitation care. So what they did was look at what's called a hazard ratio. Um, so the the way to consider a hazard ratio is it's just the ratio of hazard rates that correspond to a condition uh, that's characterized by two different levels of treatment. So to break that down simply, simply um, let's say you're studying a drug, the treated population may die at twice the rate Um, as the regular population, if they received that drug. So the hazard ratio would be elevated in the patient population that died at twice the rate. So what they saw was for this, that higher blood pressure goals after resuscitation led to a higher rate of death and comatose um, symptoms, not necessarily led to, but was associated with. So, you know, the question is what's, what's the impact for EMS and what does this mean for EMS professionals? Is it practice changing? Like, am I going to go out there and, you know, aggressively reach for lower blood pressures? I would say no. You know, the MAP range really wasn't that crazy. It was 63 versus 77. Clinically, most of us aim for a MAP of 60 to 65 in the post-resuscitation period. And that's really to make sure that all your organs are perfused. That's the minimum MAP to perfuse all your vital organs is the 60 to 65 range. So I would say I would aggressively target a MAP of at least 60 to 65, Um, but uh, you know, it just shows there's no benefit in targeting a higher, higher map.
0: So, and this goes to speak to the way that we resuscitate people where for years now, it's always been, you know, once you get them resuscitated, we're going to give them epi, we're going to give them fluid. We're going to do all that kind of stuff. And taking a moment to actually think about physiology, physiology, that's the word that I'm going to use because I went to college, um, Taking a moment to think about how physiology works when you're considering how maps work and everything like that. It's possible that just adding too much pressure to the vessels allow them to not actually work the way that they're supposed to. So I, I agree that it's not necessarily practice changing, but we've talked a lot about the show about sometimes the best way to resuscitate someone is to don't just do something and stand there. And this might be one of those things that contributes to it. So once we get a ROSC back in the patient, when we're adding extra pressors and things like that, we might actually be doing more long-term damage than short-term damage. Which is something I'm not sure that we consider enough in EMS because we tend to be focused more on the 25 minutes I'm with that patient. So, while well, I know you mentioned it's not practice changing, but is that something that we should consider pre-hospitally about how much fluid or pressors we're giving post-arrest?
1: I I think EMS is a little bit of a, a weird scenario in the sense that you're you're really there in in the very acute or peri-resuscitation period, and you know while while what you said is correct, you know EMS we're not necessarily always you know so forward-minded to look, you know, how the patient's going to do a week or two weeks from now or 90 days from now, you know, it's really, can I just get this person stable from where I am to the emergency department or definitive care? You know, I would say for for those of us that have a little bit of a longer transport time, or for those of our listeners who do critical care transfer, you know, I would say this probably is a little more relevant to that. Um, You know, if you're working in a more suburban or rural system where your post-resuscitation transport may be you know 30 minutes an hour plus or you're flying these people out then yes i would say this is a little more appropriate you know when it comes to what you're working on in a post-resuscitation period you really need to target it to patient specific it's difficult sometimes because in the hospital we have things like you know ultrasound to really you know assist us with you know is there too much fluid do we need to switch depressors you know what's driving this hypotension we have lab work You know, some EMS systems are starting to incorporate point-of-care labs, point-of-care ultrasound, which is great, you know, but for the average paramedic or critical care transport nurse or whatever else it's going to be doing these, it's going to be a lot of your, you know, clinical gestalt and and the feel of the patient, you know, is their skin cool and clammy, are they hypotensive because I see they're bleeding, or they urinated all over themselves, or they had insensible losses, so... To answer your question in short, you know, I would still aim to target a map of sixty five. So you know we've all been in cardiac arrest where the post blood pressure is two forty over one seventy for like ten minutes because we gave nine million epis. You know, those are patients I would stop the fluid. I wouldn't aggressively resuscitate that blood pressure or them. You know, they're clearly vasoconstricted or something, and then just do very close serial monitoring of your blood pressures. every you know my for a post resuscitation, I'm doing blood pressures every two and a half minutes at least. Or throwing in an A-line and getting continuous blood pressure reading, you know, which is, you know, some systems don't have A-lines. Most systems, I would say, don't have A-lines pre-hospitally. Um, but, you know, that I, w- I would sort of, what I say, trust your clinical gestalt. Look at it. Look at the patient. Are they clamped down because I gave them 9 million epis? Are they hypertensive because they had, you know, an intracerebral injury that caused them to go into cardiac arrest? You know, what's causing this hypertension? Is there anything I can do to treat it? I would say we don't necessarily treat the hypertension aggressively. I would be more focused on making sure they don't become hypotensive and maintaining that systolic or maintaining that map of 60 to 60.
0: And Kevin and Jess, do you think that this is something that affects the the transport side or is it, is this something that you would kind of look at, or are we still just looking at general maps for flight and transfer?
5: A hundred percent. So we do try to do targeted mapping, particularly in our post-resuscitative and stroke patients. Um, we kind of have a, uh, some kind of loose guidelines, 65 is our target for a lot of post-resuscitation people um, based off what we know for current literature. Um, Yeah, so for post-resuscitative care, um, our biggest thing is really trying to control their pH and um, for post-resuscitative care, especially if we know it using the vent um, and MAP, like we spend a lot of time titrating pressures to achieve MAP pressures that'll keep the patient um, perfusing adequately and keep them alive until the next phase of their care.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And, and Danny, what do you think so far?
4: I, I think it's hard. Um... You know, if you're an EMT or, or a paramedic with a short transport time, you know, we know that the map is systolic times plus two times the diastolic divide by three, or look at the little number on the monitor on your NIBP, and it's going to tell you. The problem is, I think, with, with the short-term transports, a lot of our NIBPs are inaccurate. Um, it would be much better to have, like Mike said, have an A-line, Um But if you can do it, um, if you can keep them at a map of 60, 65, and just keep that number in your mind, that that's the minimum perfusion we need for body's organs, for the kidneys, the liver, Um, I think you're going to be doing well for your patient. Um, I don't know over the short term that this is a huge practice changer for me with my transport times. Other than that, I'm going to shoot for, I usually shoot for a map of 60, 65, so that occasional low blood pressure doesn't doesn't freak me out too much. Um, But if it's overtly high, I want to kind of not over-resuscitate.
0: Yeah, and then to add to your point, I mean, when you have something like a a monitor available to you that does calculate a map, you know, it's easy to remember like 35 to 45 for CO2. You can just add 65 for the map. So in, in an arrest, you're looking for 35, 45, 65 right i would so- i would
1: also like to remind people too if you're using uh you know most projects are using a life pack or zoll or whatever else so the actual systolic and diastolic you get on the monitor is not true it's proprietary software that calculates a systolic and diastolic based off the map so the map is actually the most accurate piece of data you're going to get from a blood pressure machine on these zolls or like
0: and again until we actually get into a point where ems can start floating art lines in the field we're not going to have the most accurate data Um, I'm, I'm certain in the next 10 or 15 years, we're going to see medics start floating art lines, but we're not quite there yet. Um, and just, just to touch on this, this study had an N of 789 patients. So it's a fair amount of, uh, of subjects they had for this, um, And I I do think that that's pretty interesting that, you know, we want to try and keep the map lower than we may have anticipated earlier. Uh, And again, all this stuff is going to be listed in the show notes. So this next one, uh, we've talked about blood products a lot and hemorrhage uh, during this show. And this uh, this refill trial came out. This is in April of last year. This came out in the Lancet. And this conversation was mostly about uh, resuscitating with blood products in patients who had trauma, uh, hemorrhagic shock and received pre-hospital care. It was a multi-center study. Um, Fairly well done. uh, No real uh, methodological complaints that I have here. Um, they assigned 432 patients for the study. So again, a fair amount of, uh, a fair amount that was recruited for the study. So Mike, what do we think about blood for trauma?
1: So blood for trauma, I mean, obviously if they're bleeding, they need blood. Uh, you know, there, there's two things trauma patients need. It's blood and a surgeon. If if they're really sick, they don't even need an ER. Um, you know, they just need to get to a trauma center and into the OR as fast as possible. Um, you know, so, so this study in particular, it's the refill study out of, out of the United Kingdom, multicenter RCT, it compared blood and plasma versus normal saline in outcomes of trauma patients. You know, so a couple things, it was stopped early due to COVID, um, you know, the, the enrollment period was during then. So, you know, a lot of studies that are coming out now were kind of affected by then, all these longitudinal R- RCTs. The other thing that I thought was a little strange is I I think our demographic here in the United States is very different than that in the United Kingdom, as far as what sort of trauma patients we see, you know, I I think they only had like 4% or less were penetrating traumas related to gunshot wounds, for example, whereas, you know, that's probably the majority of trauma some of us see on a a shift. Um, Additionally, their transport times are not grossly consistent with the United States, um, their average time from scene to transport was less than th- or scene to hospital was less than thirty minutes. Um, to randomization, or rather from randomization, not necessarily scene to hospital, was thirty minutes. Whereas for us, a majority of EMS systems outside of urban centers are like thirty to sixty minutes, or you're flying these patients, and their total time from first EMS contact to definitive care is at least forty-five minutes to an hour. So. You know, I don't really think this study is necessarily applicable to all U.S. systems. I think this would be applicable to urban systems in the United States where your transport time is 5, 10 minutes. You scoop and swoop, you get them to the trauma center, and they're in definitive care right away. You know, those are patients that I think the literature still needs to bear out. Is it worthwhile giving them blood early? My my gut feeling is probably yes. You know, these patients just need volume resuscitation in 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 whole blood. They don't need crystalloid. They don't need pressors, They need blood and they need you to stop the bleeding. You know, I I think we need to look at, you know, data that's been collected in the United States where I do think blood is a worthwhile thing for EMS units to start carrying, especially for a majority of our patients who are prolonged scene time or prolonged transport time, which is a majority of our patients in the United.
0: And it, certainly, as so we've talked about, you know, using blood products and, and things like that previously, but it, it's another example to kind of add to the available evidence that when you have someone who their problem is they used to have X amount of blood in their body, one thing led to another, and now the amount of blood they have in their body is Y, you have to replenish that blood. It, it's it's a very kind of simple equation, I think, that we've sort of ignored uh, for the past 40 years or so. Um, and it, it's something I think that we kind of do in EMS is we find like the new, bright, shiny, fancy toy. And, you know, when we see that, it's like, oh, well, what if I give pack cells? I could give, you know, cryo, I could give platelets, I could give whatever. And it it feels like we've been kind of fractionating these blood products, trying to find the magic, sort of like the magic product to give. But it it comes down to you lost blood, you need blood. Um, I'm not convinced that we've done a very good job in EMS of recognizing surgical injuries. Where, you know, we have this patient, they have this injury, and the, the treatment for them is, you know, that we've, we've talked about hot lights and cold steel before, where, you know, the, this is the actual, like, definitive treatment this patient needs. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure as a culture why we're resistant to that. Danny, you might want to touch on that. Um, why, why are we resistant to to whole blood in the field, given this <laughs> fair amount of data we have?
4: I think the resistance to whole blood is basically a logistical thing than a traditional thing. Uh, we've been using one-to-one-to-one therapy for a while, and it's kind of become standard of care. But if you look at packed red cells compared to whole blood, it, it doesn't measure up as well. Um, your hematic, your uh, hemoglobin is lower. Uh, the amount of platelets carried is much less than a, than a unit of whole blood. Um, that's the thing that got me with this study is that, you know, is people are PRBCs and plasma, the best fluid. It's probably not the best fluid. The best fluid is whole blood. Um, is that going to make a difference in, in, in my care in the field? No, they got to go to the trauma Bay. Um, if you're going to perform an intervention in the field with a trauma patient, uh, whether it's blunt or fit or penetrating that that intervention has got to pay off on the back end it's an investment in time and in the patient's life and if you're not going to you know every, everybody wants to go in there with two lines and all the happy cool stuff but you know what the reality is if it's not going to provide a back something on the back end for the patient we shouldn't be doing it on um that being said i think whole blood is probably the the future Um, Once we start figuring out how to store it better, how to rotate it better, and the blood banks start getting used to carrying it, um, I think you're going to see it become back as it historically was as the preeminent fluid.
0: So if if we're just to implement these types of policies where we're putting whole blood out into the field, and Caroline, I want to kind of get your feedback on this. Do we think that, aside from the introduction, right? So we have hospitals that have agreed on blood banks, um, you know, recycling blood and getting them out like that. I, I want to ask Caroline, what do you think we can do as as either medics or as hospital systems to prepare BLS for there to be blood hung in the field? Do you think that there's is there an educational process we should put them through? Should we educate them why we're putting blood out? Because I I tend to think that if I'm if I'm bringing an EMT a bag of blood, that's going to be a very high stress situation during that call.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, especially for like a lot of new EMTs and people like who haven't seen it done in the field or haven't even heard about it done in the field just I think like an educational aspect would help being the medic just communicating like why that blood is being like useful and like just communicating like on the call or after the call like why you did what you did really helps um EMTs in the field like understand like more and it helps us learn
0: And Jess, you've worked uh, in an environment where you've been able to transport people that that have whole blood hanging. I guess the question I want to ask you is because as we're introducing new tools to EMS, people are going to be stressed out about setups and you know, oh, there, there's there's always the, you know, the the cultural and work thing of like, oh, this is extra work for me. This isn't my job, et cetera. I, I wonder if you can explain the process of actually setting up a whole blood drip. And is it fairly labor intensive or is it fairly easy? And then given that, is that something that we've just kind of ignored in EMS if it's easy to do?
2: I think the hang up doesn't come from the setup of it. I think it's more um, they're just unfamiliar with it and unfamiliar with the adverse effects that could happen after being administered. So the setup is pretty simple. Um, It's, you use a Y-site IV tubing, and that's mostly to prevent um, loss of the blood product in the tubing itself. So using a Y setup, you have one of the Y connectors goes to the blood product. The other one goes to a small um, saline bag, um, which helps flush through the rest of the blood after the infusion is finished. So the setup is quite simple. I think a lot of the hang-ups come from not understanding essentially what, what the adverse effects of a blood transfusion would look like and what a transfusion reaction would look like. And then after realizing they're having a transfusion reaction, what are you going to do for that patient to help stabilize them in the case that it happens?
0: And I, the most important part of that was getting uh, Rory's feedback oh, as well. I'm, I'm excited to, yeah, we, we can, t- if if, if time we time. can teach him how to set up a blood drip, we can, we can teach most medics how to set up a blood drip.
4: Rory's wearing a sinkfisher t-shirt. He's uh he's in whole blood. He's
5: hundred <laughs> I mean, percent. Honestly, uh, setting up a, setting up a blood drip is easier than setting up an A-line. Um, so there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing blood drips even before A-line setups for our, um, paramedics in the field, um, uh, Personally, at my shop, we're working on doing trying to get a lines as something we can do as, as well as blood products. And like we were talking about earlier today, the biggest hang up is the logistics of not having it go to waste and getting it transported and storing it. That's the that's the real tr- that's the real trick to it. Otherwise, it's really easy to to uh, set up, implement and have positive results with.
4: And the reality of that, Kevin, is that most of the programs have realized, if you look at New Orleans, if you look at uh, Austin, Travis County, uh, some of the preeminent EMS agencies that are bringing on a whole blood program, their waste is actually less than the blood bank's average. So this stuff's getting used and, you know, you use whole blood for a period of time. It can always get spun down into other stuff. Um, But. You know, the benefits of whole blood, I think, are pretty much in the literature at this point, and it should be standard of care.
0: So if we're going to go to using A-lines for tracking maps and things like that, Kevin, talk about the process of starting an A-line pre-hospitally. So honestly, it's really, especially
5: doing into risk, you just got to find a pulse, and it's just a 90-degree stick until a point where you get some blood drawback, and then just be a matter of securing it in place, securing your tubing. And um, the real hard part is actually setting up your transducer and making sure that you're at the plebostatic access to make sure um, you're properly dampened and make sure you're getting accurate blood readings. And then, of course, the pressure bag setup. So it can get a little complicated with the tubing, the setup, and especially if it's something you don't do often or interact with often, it could be really overwhelming. Um, be a comparison to like hanging a blood product, you just have a special drip tubing with that little chamber with the, um, I'm not actually sure what's inside it, and then the Y tubing and it's two it's bags. A two... It's a filter, it a filter. yes. It's a filter. Well, I don't know what the filter is made of. It looks like cotton, I don't crack it open and taste it, but you can just, it's way easier to set up a bloodline than an A-line and having an already established A-line is really easy to transduce if you've done it like twice. Um, But otherwise it could be, it, it could be overwhelming for a novice for sure. I don't, I wouldn't, I would want paramedics in the field your pre-hospital people carrying blood before starting A-lines because they'll get more benefit out of administering blood even to somebody who doesn't need it versus sitting around and tampering trying to get an A-line in and accurate and, and secure.
0: And, and I, I, Not for anything, I'm, I'm certain that the, the four of us that have worked as medics pre-hospital have probably all started A-lines uh, by accident. Um, whoops. This, yeah, whoop, whoopsie. Even, given D-50 through an A-line, man, that was the hardest push of my life. <laughs> So this is something that that can be done. um, And it's probably something that should be explored a little bit. Mike, I cut you off back then. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, no, I was I was going to agree with that. I I think, you know, if there's any delineation of what should be done first, it should be access to blood first before learning how to establish a lines. And then, you know, I just wanted to reiterate, you know, don't sit on scene to just try and get an A-line. They need to go to the hospital. asap.
5: A a lines could take quite a bit of time to get set up. Absolutely.
4: And yeah, that's, again, that's an investment and that may be better off done in the trauma bag or in the OR. Right.
5: right but that's the thing, you know,
1: over time you learn clinically, what can I do here that will benefit the patient? What do they actually need? And, you know, that's really where a good EMS clinician shines.
0: And so now we'll get back onto uh, a topic we've talked a whole lot about. Uh, we have no idea what the hell we're doing for cardiac arrest. So this this next study, uh, this also comes out in New England. This is from Cheskis et al. This is defibrillation strategies in refractory ventricular fibrillation. Um, something that's been discussed fairly regularly is dual sequential external defibrillation. Uh, whether or not that actually has any value or any merit, there's been a lot of academic discussion as to whether the problem is the vectors of the pads or if it's the amount of electricity that's put through. Um, and we've been we've been discussing this. I mean, at, close for to a decade at this point. Um, it, DSEDs are certainly something that uh, that I've tried. I'm pretty sure we've all tried it at least one point. Um, and this also kind of contributed to the hands on defibrillation debate that happened a bunch of years ago. Uh, so, Mike, what uh, what have we learned about dual sequential external defibrillation uh, and how can we actually make people with VFib better?
1: I love this study. But I think part of the reason I love this study is because I love refractory VFib. If there's one thing I'm going to nerd out about and I can talk about for hours and hours and it's hours, it's refractory VFib. <laughs> I just think it is such an interesting patient population, it's, and dude, I, it's I such a good thing that you're married. Time.
0: Because i I'm just imagine like your hinge profile, <laughs> just being like, I geek out on sci-fi and coffee and refractory ventricular fibrillation. Come I enjoy
1: discussions about Reese's products, amiodarone, <laughs> stellate ganglion blocks, and dual sequential defibrillation.
5: <laughs> honestly, um,
0: if, if Michael and I both
5: were married, we'd probably wind up together as a couple. Honestly, absolutely. <laughs> um,
1: you know, so so this study. <laughs> yes, called- you know it's true. <laughs> this study is called defibrillation strategies for refractory vfib out of new england journal november of 2022 very very recent study you know it asked the question for shock refractory vfib which is a common occurrence for out of hospital cardiac arrest does dual sequential defib versus vector changing defib versus standard defibrillation change or improve outcomes in refractory vfib So their primary outcome they measured was survival to hospital discharge. Secondary outcomes they measured termination of the V-fib, ROSC, and good neurological outcome at discharge. So what they did was do a cluster randomized control trial without getting too much into the nerdy dirty of, you know, statistics that just meant instead of individualizing who would get randomized, they randomized it by cluster. So, for example, you know, you have medics one through three working for the day. Medic one would do dual sequential. Medic two would do vector changing. Medic three would do regular DFib. So they enrolled 405 patients, which is pretty decent for an RCT, especially an EMS RCT. One third received the standard DFib, one third, the dual sequential and one third, the vector changing. And they found out that survival was more common in both the dual sequential and the vector changing than standard, but dual sequential was associated with the higher good neurologic outcome. So, you know, were there any weaknesses in the study? You know, if you really had to point to one, it would be lack of blinding. Sometimes that can influence care, meaning if you were the medic unit assigned to the dual sequential and you had a patient in refractory V fib, you you can't tell me you're going to treat that patient a little different than if you were doing regular DFib. You're going to be going, you know. Yeah. Floor to the. I wanted to say balls to the wall. I'll say balls to the wall. Fine. If you're gonna
0: go balls to the wall. <laughs> no, no. What, what were you gonna What were you we gonna say? Because you started saying floor. That's what. That's where I want to pedal to the metal. But Peddle's I was no, 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 no. You said board. floor. I want to know what we're doing. To well, I know floor. I said floor. I was
1: thinking pedal to the metal. Balls to the floor. Balls to the floor. floor. <laughs> you going, <you're> going full <laughs> balls to the floor. You, you know. So uh. so that's that's really where lack of blinding can come in. You you, you work a little harder because you want your intervention to work, right? So you know that could be one element of bias in the study, but do I think it invalidates the data? I don't. I think this is a great study for EMS. I do. I think this is practice changing for me. No, because I've been doing this shit the last six years that I've been having any anybody with refractory VF. <laughs> All y'all need to but catch if up. If you're not doing it, do it. It makes sense. He think about it. it. <laughs> if you're not getting, if you're not getting VFib done away with with regular defibrillation, throw a second set of pads on. You do your anterior-posterior. You do your anterior-anterior. Not only do you get your dual sequential, you get your vector change of the of the energy you're delivering, and you know it just works. I, I I can only think of one case, and this was literally six weeks ago, where I had a refractory V-fib, and the only thing that worked was getting them started on Echo. So if 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 you're not having this in your practice, you need to implement it right now. I think of any study we're going to discuss today, this is probably the most important one to walk away from and say, this is my practice changing study. I'm going to dual sequential these pages.
2: For those of us that have been at MICN for like negative five seconds, can you go through how you would actually do the procedure?
0: Sure. So and I'll well, just, just go just through, through my, quick, my algorithm Mike, for real quick, Mike, while we're on it. Um, uh, while we're dovet- while we're talking about that dovetail to when we have a uh, BLS on scene with an AED and then we show up with our, our physio or whatever we have.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to go through my regular algorithm for refractory V-fib. So, you know, the question is, when do you consider something refractory V-fib? I consider something refractory V-fib after three interventions to try to get rid of that V-fib, whether that is BLS prior to arrival or bystanders that defibrillated with an AED, or that is my defibrillation, medication intervention, and nothing's working. So when do I throw the second set of pads on and how do I go about doing that? So in my shop in the ED, we do anterior posterior pad placement for baseline for any patient that requires pad placement. And statistically, it's shown to be the best for a lot of different things. So I would recommend if you're at a system that does anterior anterior, start switching to anterior posterior if you can. One pad in the center of the chest or a little left lateral to actually get over the major part of the myocardium. And then immediately in the posterior area, usually infrascapularly on the left side. So that's first set pad placement. Second pad placement would be anterior, anterior. So right anterior chest wall above the nipple line, left anterior chest wall, right below almost where that second pad is, because really you want to get that pad underneath the, the base of the heart or the apex of the heart. So you want that pad to really sit to make sure that vector is going to go through atria to ventricle and really get that area of concern. So to do the dual sequential defibrillation, ideally you would need two advanced monitors. So not two AEDs, but two, either a LifePak or a Zole or whatever sort of commercial product you use. And I think it's beneficial to have one person doing just the defibs. So in EMS, sometimes we're a little, you know, touch short by how many staff we have available. Sometimes it could just be you and one other provider, a family member, whatever. It doesn't take a lot of energy to learn how to press two buttons. So I would say I've had family members, and Kevin can attest to this, record for us while we're doing an RSI, write down what time we're giving this medication, just put the time down so things are accurate and we know what we gave. You could teach a family member or a bystander to press two buttons. Get that person dedicated on the defib pad. Make sure you clear your patient, announce your defibbing, continue CPR up until the moment you're defibbing. Defib and then go immediately right back into CPR. The only caveat is Unless your patient starts smacking you because they woke up out of whatever ventricular just yeah, they're in, if at. they're
0: awake, stop doing compressions. That you, right, you, you did surprised. You, you did the thing. How? So, it. so it
1: now. Now that we've entered into this refractory VFib scenario, what is the next thing I do? So dual sequential is not the end of the story, right? So make sure you have your antiarrhythmic on board. Did they get the amiodarone or the lidocaine or whatever it is that your system uses? Did they get the second dose of it? Did they get an effective dose of it? Are there other things that are affecting the ability of that medicine to be appropriately transmitted in the blood? You know, one thing we talk about and Kevin brought up earlier is the pH. Are they extremely acidotic that the amiodarone or the lidocaine is dissociating in their blood because it's just not being delivered? You need to fix that. Do they need bicarb? You know, the answer is obviously not always bicarb. Bicarb's fallen out of favor in a lot of cardiac arrests unless their pH is like 6.6 which, you know, ideally you wouldn't be working them if their pH is 6.6, but you never know some, you know, really bad dialysis patients or metabolic acidosis can cause like sudden cardiac arrest, whatever other things we can do in the hospital. And this would be the only time I would advocate for you to actually transport a patient in cardiac arrest. If you really do have a refractory VFib patient and you have dual sequential and you've given all of the available pharmacology you can pre hospital, bring that patient to the hospital. Because there are things we can do in the hospital to really help those. One, stellate ganglion block. So you have huge sympathetic nerve fibers that run on the anterior portion of your cervical spine. We insert a needle. We inject anesthetic in there, lidocaine, to block it. It works. What other stuff do we do? ECMO. Does every place have pre-hospital ECMO? No, not yet. But hospitals do. This would be a case if you're working in an urban area and you're between five hospitals, Three of them may be a community, one's an academic, one's a huge quaternary academic, and you know that quaternary academic does ECPR or ECMO CPR. Divert to that hospital. Bring them to the hospital that can do CPR. This uh, ECMO CPR, this is one of the key indications for VA ECMO is refractory VFIN. So just to sort of summarize, I know I've been word vomiting a lot of things. If you have a patient in refractory VFib, I consider it refractory VFib after three interventions and they're still in VFib, whether or not that's three DFibs by anybody, including bystanders or EMTs, or DFib plus pharmacologic intervention. Next step, once you hit, once I've identified I am in refractory VFib, dual sequential, throw the pads on. Ideal initial pad placement should be anterior posterior, secondary placement, anterior anterior, making sure that 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 left lateral one is really on the base of the heart. Try to imagine physiologically where that heart is going to be in the chest. It's not the center of the chest. It's left lateral, generally infranipillary, infranipulary line, inframammary. That is no, 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 Um,
0: no. Infranipillary is the word. Now we're, we're sticking with the new new medical term (laughs) infranipillary.
1: So after I do that, then that's when I would say, if that patient is still in V fib and you're on scene, and you're being a good EMS clinician knowing, hey, if I transport cardiac arrest, they're going to die and I should never transport a cardiac arrest. I'm going to tell you you're wrong. This is the one time you do want to transport a cardiac arrest because they need more intervention. And whether those interventions that can be done, again, stellate ganglion block and ECMO CPR. So if you're between two hospitals and you know one does ECMO, bring them to that ECMO center. And that's my five-minute spiel on refractory VfiB
0: so if we're walking into a patient cardiac arrest, because uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the EMTs listening, should they just put the AED anterior or posterior just to start?
1: So I, it honestly depends what their commercial device is. Most commercial devices, even if they're anterior, anterior, will still get great reads anterior, posterior. That would be something I would run by your medical director first just to make sure it actually works. You know, For example, in our system with our EMS, our, our pads do say anterior, anterior, but they work anterior, posterior.
0: So it it's just like everything else, it it's it it depends, right? Like th- this this project works provided that everyone is in line and everything, you know, works the way that it's supposed to work.
1: Right. And you can't just say, hey, I listened to this bald guy on a podcast. You told me to do it.
5: <laughs> yeah. Secondary Mike, also about transporting an active cardiac arrest. Um, we know that CPR quality goes down in a moving ambulance so bad. Would you have any reservations about somebody without an automatic CPR device? transporting a refractory vfib or is it just this is their only shot you just got to take
1: i think you got to do what you got to do uh you know really these patients that are in vfib you'd be surprised it's like drowning patients drowning patients could be down for hours and they'll have good favor- favorable neurologic outcome same thing with these vfib patients they could be down for a while as long as they're getting at least some element of reperfusion even if it's shitty cpr some element of reperfusion if you can get them to a definitive therapy you'd be surprised so i would say You know, ideally, if you do have a mechanical CPR device, throw that on. The biggest thing I see is these mechanical CPR devices with movement get dislodged or moved out of the ideal location. So if you're going to be transporting a V-fib cardiac arrest with mechanical CPR device, make sure that piston, if you're not using a a circumferential compressor, make sure that piston is actually over where the heart is. Not necessarily midline of the chest, but make sure it's over where the heart is because That is the the biggest mistake I see with these mechanical CPR devices, number one. Number two, if you don't have it, try your best because really this is the patient's only shot. If you've worked this on scene for so long, they're either going to be dead at home or you're going to give them a shot at the hospital.
0: And now just to build off of that, um, we're going to talk about one more thing that came out of resuscitation in October of last year. Um, as long as we're talking about cardiac arrest devices using a, a piston controlled device or a circumferential device, which again, it, just so we're clear, the, there's still no data supporting uh, using automated devices that actually improves outcomes, which naturally is one of the problems that we're we always run into, right? Like the, the, the conversation that we're having now about what could make outcomes better, things like that, we're, we're still only talking about eight to twelve percent of the general population unless you're in Seattle. So you know, you know, there's there's ways that we can resuscitate people better, but again, I'm I'm not convinced that we fully appreciate how to resuscitate people from CPR. I'm excited about the data that's coming out. It seems like we're we're starting to kind of get there, but it it, it the, everything just kind of seems still pretty hazy to me. What do you think, Dan?
1: I I.
4: I... I think that the data on mechanical CPR is probably a little off, to be honest. Um, I think there's a lot of factors involved. Um, and most of the studies are showing that it's not superior. That doesn't mean that it's inferior. Um, anything in my mind that takes people out of the Congo law and takes human factors away and and kind of improve the flow of the resuscitation, which continuous compressions was something that's going to compress at this depth, at this rate, for as long as that battery runs, that's probably a good thing. I just think we haven't, I don't think the data is there yet, because I don't think we're using it enough. Um, The biggest thing for me, two big takeaways for me on this is as, as an EMT or a paramedic, ALS, BLS, whatever you are, talk to each other. you got to game this stuff out. Figure out, go see what your, you know, what's, what is your ALS carry? What is your BLS carry? Are the pads compatible? Um, some makes, if you have a physio AED and a physio monitor, you can, you know, those pads are compatible, they'll work. Um, other brands, not so much. So you have to know your equipment, you have to know who's coming in on your resuscitations. And you, you kind of have to game this out. And this is a great way for both sides, ALS, BLS, EMTs, paramedics, to engage each other and kind of say, hey, what do you got? How would we do this if this happened? You know, when you're sitting around the station, or you're doing your rig checks. Uh, this is a good discussion to get into. Um, again, you know, talk to your medical directors, um, be careful with some of the uh, monitors. Um, this is something you might want to engage your clinical department with, because some of these monitors are not warranted for double sequential defibrillation. Um, some manufacturers have not recommended its use. Um, this is something where you engage your clinical department, but um, it's definitely, I think, this is this is promising stuff, and I think this is the future of resuscitation science. And I think we're going to
0: get there. And certainly, don't do anything just because we told you to. Uh, all of these studies will be listed in the show notes. Uh, these are just kind of better ideas, because as I said, we have no idea what we're doing for cardiac arrest, and uh, the entire purpose of this endeavor is to try and make people do better. So, uh, on the same tip of how we have no idea what we're doing in cardiac arrest uh again let's go back to resuscitation october 2022 this is coming from uh out of dr moore out of hennepin county and a bunch of the eagles the ems eagles uh our our friends in texas and florida uh this is head and thorax elevation during cardiopulmonary resuscitation using circulatory adjuncts is associated with improved survival so what they looked at here is there are commercially available devices that will do commercial cpr with a again a lucas or um uh, an auto pulse, a, a piston driven device or a circumferential device, because we don't advertise for either Lucas or for auto pulse. Um, but uh, essentially there's a commercial device that's been developed that allows people to be slanted at about 30 degrees when compressions are being done. So Mike, talk to us about this. We'll talk about this for a bit and then uh, we'll get out of here.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the primary question of this study was does using a heads up device as part of a CPR bundle improve survival outcomes in out of hospital cardiac arrest. So, you know, I actually like that term CPR bundle. I, I think it's a good thing to kind of approach a cardiac arrest from. And, and what was the definition of a bundle in this study? It was both an impedance threshold device and a mechanical CPR device. You know, so these impedance threshold devices make sure you're actually getting good adequate chest recoil to allow cardiac refill during, you know, CPR, as opposed to just like continuous compressions, um, plus in you know, the mechanical device, which we just had a huge discussion about Versus conventional CPR with or without the impedance threshold device. So the primary outcome that was looked at in this study was survival to hospital discharge. Secondary outcomes were ROSC and favorable neurological outcome. They included 227 patients, again, which is a pretty good number for an EMS study. 7% were witnessed by EMS. These are cardiac arrests. 43% were witnessed by bystanders and received bystander CPR, which I think if you're looking at limitations to this study, I think that's actually a pretty interesting number. I mean, how many times do we actually get cardiac arrest that get bystander CPR? Really not that often. I can count, and that's a, that's know, a whole other
0: not. thing that we have to, that we have right, to address. Exactly. It's a social so, cultural thing.
1: You know, the study did find that, uh, you know, there was increased survival with the use of the heads up CPR. The significant limitations of the study, it was a funded study. So this study was directly funded by the company that made this heads up CPR device. Um, so, you know, that's one thing to consider. Does it negate the data? No, but are there certain biases that are introduced? Yeah, you're funding a study, you want your product to work, right? So, you know, does this co- does this coincide with data we've seen in animal studies? Yes. You know, so there was another, another study that was done in 2022, heads up CPR in pig models and it showed increased ROSC in those models. So, you know, it is analogous to those studies. My interpretation for EMS, I still think this is an area of active research I don't elevate the head of the bed still in my CPR cases. I, th- I think this is really something that's on the cutting, cutting edge of cardiac arrest research. And I think we just need to wait for the literature to come out still.
4: Here's what gets me about this study, and this is what, I, what worries me is, this is a bundle of care, okay? So we don't know what's actually improving the care here. Is it the impedance threshold device, which is going to maximize cardiac refill and negative pressure in the chest? Uh was it the heads up thing that promoted the survival the benefit? We don't know. I don't know that this study is I don't know that bundle studies are gonna work as effectively as just one thing.
1: Yeah, Um, I I I agree with that. And I think the other interesting thing to pull away from the study is there really wasn't any change in neurologic outcome. So, you know, a lot of the reason and the rationale, I think it was Dr. Luthrie that came up with the initial heads up CPR idea. Um was, you know cerebral perfusion really isn't that great with supine CPR and an animal studies shown to be better with heads up CPR. So, you know, it's stand to reason that if you're going to be doing heads up CPR, you should have some impact on neurologic outcome. Granted, this was a relatively small study for something like that. Um, and their primary outcome wasn't neurologic outcome. It was ROSC. So I would be more interested in, in looking forward to future studies that really show, is there a change in neurologic outcome with heads up CPR, which honestly is really what we do care about in CPR studies in general, right? I mean, I think we've all seen people get ROSC on a rock, right? You know, this person has been down forever. Someone's just doing really good CPR. You've loaded them with a ton of of vasopressors, right? Your epi, whatever I
0: gave Bertilium, I got a a pulse back.
1: (laughs) No, but that's what I'm saying. So we've all seen those scenarios, but you know, the question now, I think resuscitation science has gotten to a point. It's not really a question of, can we get ROSC? I think a majority of the time in the right scenario, we can get asked. it's, can we get a good, favorable neurologic outcome? Can this dead person go back to being the way they were before they died? And that's really the question for these sorts of heads up devices. Does this impact neurologic outcome? And I think that's what the future of these studies is really gonna take on. Cause these preliminary studies are showing, doesn't have any impact on ROSC. It may, it may not, it seems to. Great. So we've established that baseline. It doesn't make ROSC worse. So now the real question is, is it going to impact neurologic outcome? That's what I'm excited to see. And that's what I think we should be looking forward to as EMS clinicians over the next couple of years as these studies.
0: And certainly with looking like getting a ROSC back in a patient, that is something that, you know, it's the first thing that has to happen. But I've always kind of likened it to when you turn on a computer where the hard drive has crashed. Right. You, you, like if, if I have like I, I work on a Mac, if I turn on my computer and it comes up with just a question mark, yes, my computer turns on, but I can't do the things that I'm trying to do with the computer. Similar with a with, you know, a a desktop or, a, you know, Windows PC, you get that blue screen of death. So I feel like that's a it, it, I've always used that kind of as a decent analogy where it's like, yeah, the computer can turn on, but it's not supposed to do the computing things that it's supposed to do. So that, that's always how I've kind of looked at it as far as like getting a ROSC versus getting a decent CPC score. Um So that's we're coming up on this hard out. We just went through four really, really good papers that I think are very interesting. Again, practice changing, maybe not yet, but stay tuned for everything because as Mike said, resuscitation medicine is growing. It is an evolving field. Um, and we're, we're, we're just, we're right there. We're getting to the point where we actually kind of, kind of maybe have an idea what the hell we're doing for cardiac arrest, which is the whole reason that EMS exists in the first place. There are two additional studies that Mike was good enough to pull for us that are going to be listed in the show notes. Um, and I'm also going to go over them on our different social media channels. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, please do that. Uh, we're also gonna be building out our presence on YouTube. So subscribe there. And we're also on TikTok, where we talk about new, uh, data and medical information on a fairly regular basis, and make sure to follow our friends and all that stuff. We are everywhere on the social medias uh, and all that. So I'll give the last word to all y'all. If there's any one last thing you want to say before we head out, I guess I'll start. Um, bring these studies to your medical
5: director. You learning about this stuff doesn't change anything. You do need permission to do these things via protocols, standing orders, uh, medical direction. So present them to your medical director. Be the help help institute the change that would be better for our patients.
4: Yeah. Again, uh, and going off of Kevin, you know, talk amongst yourselves, how are you going to do this for mentally prepare for the next time you have a resuscitation so that when you go in there, your team kind of has an idea how we're going to get this done and how, what we're going to accomplish, um, Know the capabilities of your resources. You know, if you're a, a tiered system, what do your paramedics bring to the table? If you're, a, you know, a one and one system, you know, how are you going to divide up the labor? Um, fly car, same thing. But you know, there's my, there's tons of different ways to to slice this pizza, and uh, you know, just uh, talk it out. It's a good way to
1: build camaraderie and uh, build collegiality. By the time you're thinking about refractory V-Fib, it may be too late. So I would encourage you next time you have a VFIB arrest to at least just put it somewhere in the forefront of your mind that this situation could develop into a refractory VFib. And if you have extra hands, start getting the stuff ready before you actually need it. If you're an ALS team that works with two ALS providers and you have a BLS engine there with you, Ask one of those wonderful, burly, super strong firefighters to grab the second life pack and to get the stuff set up just in case you need to use it.
2: Honestly, I think just having a open conversation with your educator, if you have one, and if you don't have an educator, whoever is in charge of your um, clinical and operations would be a good start because nothing's going to change if you don't make the effort to have these conversations with whoever is coming up with your SOPs and your clinical guidelines so um that's that's really all i can say because i've had lots of really great discussions with my clinical um educators in both hospital and in ems and those discussions when you have a good clinical guidance are usually taken um with a lot of enthusiasm so we've had a lot of sop changes just based on conversations
3: I think, like what everyone else said, I think communication is a really big part of uh, cardiac arrest care. So, just open, like, like an open dialogue, like with medical directors, like closed loop communication, like with your team, um, while working a cardiac arrest. Communication is so important.
0: And I think that's that's the biggest thing. With as this data emerges and as we start to learn more. We have this availability of technology and data that's available to pretty much everybody, and there's a lot of it, so it's very difficult to search. Um, I, I can speak personally. I've had medical directors come up to me saying that we're actually, we being you know the, the, the crew of the Overrun, are more up-to-date on some of the data than some of the medical directors that are out there. So listen to the show, love the show, share the show with all of your friends, and for the whole gang at the Overrun, for Danny, Mike, Kevin, Jess, and Caroline, my name is Ed Bowder. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to all the stuff, and we will talk to you next time.